Hello and welcome. My name's Karen O'Connor and this is Things That Make You Go Hmm. This is your podcast to help you make the most of the wisdom and experience that comes with getting that little bit older. Let's get right into it. Hello and welcome. Today I'm here with Barb Higgins. Welcome, Barb. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. You have the most incredible story to share. And when I first, when you first emailed me and I read a little bit about you, I'm like, oh my goodness, because it really harks back to the reason that, hang on, I'm just going to, I'm not even going to read out your bio because the reason I started the podcast two, nearly three years ago now was to share people's stories because I knew I had all of these friends around me. I knew all these women across the world who had the most incredible stories to share and there was no outlet for them to share them. And to me, inspiration comes more frequently from somebody that I know closely who's gone through things and survived things and experienced things. And that's you. Yeah, very much so. (laughs) You're the same age as me, by the way, both 1963 years. Well, that's best year ever. (laughs) Tell me what you told me in the email. Tell me about your story, particularly the recent one. (laughs) So I was, I'm a relatively normal person. I live in a very typical house in a small town in a very typical New England community. I'm a teacher and a coach. You know, there's nothing outstanding about my day-to-day life in general. I'm just as regular as anyone else. Having said that, my life story from beginning to now, when I was speaking with an editor at a publishing company, she said to me, if you were a fictional character, I would turn you away because nobody would believe that all these things could happen to one person. You would not be a believable character. So I leave with that because as the story unfolds, you think, okay, what next, what next, what next? That It's like that. But I was living a relatively normal life. Everything was relatively happy. And we all have our ups and downs. It was 2016. I was 53. And my daughter, Molly, had some headaches. And we took her to the doctor several times, ignored, stressed out teenager, all that kind of answers to to our questions. And then her headaches compounded and got worse and worse with all sorts of other symptoms. So we took her to the hospital. And after 16 hours in an ER being refused any imaging, she a brain tumor ruptured in her head and killed her. So she was completely alive and then completely dead, like instantaneously. Like we didn't have an illness to prepare for. It was just one of those things. So my mundanely happy life came to a screeching halt. In the years that followed her death, and I have her sister, Gracie, is two years older. So that was pretty devastating for Gracie. And in the years that followed, life was pretty dark for us. During that time, my husband, Kenny, was getting sicker and sicker from some advanced renal failure and kidney disease. The stress levels were just huge. So I started having a dream that I should have a baby. So my first thought is I'm crazy and I have a lot of grief going on in my head and I am responding by having these baby dreams. And I also, at that point, went into grief-induced menopause symptoms, so hot flashes and all those things. And So I just really felt like I was falling apart. After several weeks of these dreams, I just thought, you know what, I'll just go to the doctor. I'll see what's what. So I went to one doctor who I'd gone to for a long time. She was my nurse practitioner, actually. And I told her about the dreams and what I was thinking. And she just yelled at me, really reprimanded me. That's crazy. That's unhealthy. You need to find a therapist. Really just gave me heck for it. And so I got pretty upset. 
And I had a therapist. You get a therapist after you lose a child. I went to someone else. I went to a doctor that I had known of years ago that I had often sent some of my high school students to because he was just such a down-to-earth, wonderful OBGYN. And he was like, let's look into it. If anyone can have a baby, you can. He was super supportive and just very kind. And so I, I started the process of, could I have a baby in my early 50s? And I did a bunch of testing. And I found a clinic in Boston, Massachusetts, that would do women in their 50s, like an, a clinic fairly specific to older women. Um, and this wonderful Italian doctor named Vito Cardoni, he's like my hero. He's just the sweetest, sweetest man. And so I went through rigorous test testing and passed everything with flying colors. And he said, the only reason I know you're, I was 53 at the time, is it says it on your chart. Looking at your body and your level of fitness and the integrity of your uterus and all of this, I wouldn't think you were a day over 40, 45. So that made me feel much better. <laughs> Isn't it great when 40 to 45 is young, right? <laughs> I hear myself there. I'm like, yeah, okay. But we were in the throes of a lawsuit at that time. We sued the hospital and the doctor's office because we had they just failed Molly so miserably. And we were just, it was just a handful of months after her death. So when it was all said and done and we were approved, of course, it's very pricey. And I wasn't back to work yet. And Kenny couldn't work. And so we were living on meager, meager money. I just looked up to the sky and said, look, I can't do it right now. No more dreams for a while, please. Because the dreams were persistent and intense. And they woke me up more nights than not. And so we stopped. And that was, I would say, February of 2017. Our lawsuit took another year and a half into the summer of 2018. So now we're two years after Molly's death. We settled the lawsuit, I would say two weeks later, I'm sitting on our porch, it's summer now, having coffee and Kenny comes downstairs. Gracie and I slept on the living room floor for two and a half years after Molly died. We had a hard time coming upstairs because everything reminded us of Molly. So he, I, so we would meet downstairs and have coffee. And so I said, guess what dream I had last night? And he says, the same dream that I had. The baby dream. So now he had this dream. The first round of going through testing and everything, I did months of it by myself. It wasn't until the clinic asked, is there somebody you're going to do this with? That I thought, well, I guess I should probably see if Kenny's okay with, with all of this. He does live in the house here. And so he was on board immediately. And I think he just wanted something to look forward to. We all did. Everything was just so bleak. So I went back, back to Dr. Cardoni. And I had to, of course, redo all the testing, which was fine. But I was also on a significant amount of medication. I have a nerve condition in my face. Sometimes you'll see me do something funny with my mouth. It's called trigeminal neuralgia. Much more common in women than men, but it's a nerve condition. So it's it, the nerve, the trigeminal nerve just fires a message to either here or here. It's a three-pronged nerve. So mine, I feel like I have a toothache all the time. Not anymore, but it was like a knifing pain. So they treat it with anti-seizure meds, which you really can't take when you're pregnant safely, unless you get seizures, but I didn't get seizures. So it wasn't something I could take. And in, in my IVF process was off the list. And I was on every single anti-anxiety and antidepressant, talk about over-medicated, but I was just taking so much because of depression and panic and anxiety and sadness over Molly's death. So I have a wonderful PCP at the time, her name was Laura, and we sat down with a big calendar and we just charted out how I would take myself off all of these medica medications because I couldn't just stop. Some of them are very strong psych anti-psych type meds, Xanax, Lamictal, and Lorazepam, all of those medicines, plus the seizure meds, so Tegretol, Topramate. So it was like a three-month, August to December, it took me to get off all these medicines. Now, in the process of detoxing from this, my, my face started to hurt in a way that I knew I couldn't manage without medication. So I found this amazing doctor 
from Turkey, but living here. I have all these foreign doctors. I've decided all the best doctors in the world were not born in the United States. <laughs> Sorry, United States born doctors, but in my journey, <laughs> y'all came from somewhere else. So his name was Imad Eskandar, and he was at a hospital in the Bronx in New York City. He used to be in Boston. I have two friends in town, one, one of mine, one former neighbor who had surgery by him that fixed their trigeminal neuralgia. So I called and he was no longer in Boston. So I got in touch with him in New York City, said who I was and what I was going through and what I was trying to do and what would he consider helping me. And he said, sure, go get this MRI with contrast. And when the MRI is, we'll set an appointment. So I had the MRI. So I go home and I'm in the process of picking up my phone to call New York City to say, I've had the MRI, let's set an appointment. And the phone rings and it's the neurological, the neurology department at the hospital. So you never have an MRI and get a phone call two hours later with good news at all. So I just looked at the phone. Kenny and I were at the kitchen table. Gracie was at school. She was a, a senior in high school at the time. And I'm thinking, what now? So I answer the phone and my neurologist is in tears on the phone. She's a wonderful woman. She is from Romania, Diana Tanase. See, see? So she's so upset, just so sad. And I'm like, what is it? What is it? And she said, you have one very large brain tumor and two small ones. So I'm just dumbfounded now. I've lost Molly to a brain tumor. Kenny's going to be on advanced. He's on dialysis three days a week for his kidney disease. Poor Gracie. Like I just, we just sat there speechless for a long time. So they ended up being benign. They were meningiomas and all removed fine. But we didn't know that at the time. And so I called New York and said, here's my situation. Would you please, can I still come? Would you please look at my MRI and the tumors? And so a good friend of mine took me to New York City. We went over the MRI. He said, I have Googled your story. I know Molly's death and all that around that, the lawsuit and such. And he said, you tell your daughter, Gracie, I will take good care of you and that you will be fine. And I was still, we hadn't received any substantial money from the lawsuit at that time. So I was still on subsidized health insurance, Medicaid and that sort of thing. So I explained that to him. I probably can't get it covered. And he said, I don't want you to worry about that. He managed to get a lot of it covered, which, but I never saw a bill from that hospital at all. Like they just took care of it. So it was two surgeries and radiation. So, so I went back in January and they took out this giant brain tumor. And he said, oh, we're just going to do a little incision. And when I woke up, I had no hair and black eyes and it was awful. But they got it all out. And a month later, end of February, I had some radiotherapy where they blast the little tumors because they were too small to justify cutting my head open. And then in April, three months after the tumor was removed, they had an incision here and then he repaired the trigeminal nerve. What they do is they cushion the arteries around it and pillow the whole thing and it calms it down somehow. So I still have pain. Like right now I feel it when I'm having a bad day, it hurts more than others, but it's, I, I don't take medication anymore. All of this was to have a baby. So that was all winter and spring. So spring comes and I think, okay, I'm getting ready. I'm trying to be healthy. They have to approve me. Dr. Cardoni, the baby doc will have nothing to do with it until that neurologist says it's okay. I'm doing supplements and avoiding alcohol and all, all the things <laughs> like to be the perfect body. And so we're at Disney at the end of April. So that probably wasn't smart. Get your head cut open April 10th and drive to Florida April 20th. I don't know. That might not have been smart, but we did. Because the end of April and beginning of May is when Molly died. That's the chunk of time that all this happened. And so we like to get out of town. So while we're at Disney, we see that a friend of Molly's who had danced in her funeral, she, we had a big variety show for her funeral, like a musical review. 
And the opening number was a big musical theater dance. And this young lady named Rachel, who was a bit older than Molly, but still in high school at the time, was in that show and she was on life support. So when I saw this, of course, Kenny and I jumped into action because when Molly was on life support, everybody, the support in our community was amazing. So we reached out to this family and we helped them. We sold t-shirts, we raised money, all the things that people had done for us. And meanwhile, I'm bald with a feeling crappy and Kenny's very sick. So when we returned from Florida, we met the family and her daughter's at the same hospital that we had been at. It was all very triggering. And her daughter wouldn't wake up either. They had to un remove her from life support. So Molly died on May 7th. This girl, Rachel, was born on May 7th. And so we're at the cemetery and they're getting ready to unplug her the next day. And <clears throat> Rachel's mother calls us to offer Kenny one of her kidneys. So Kenny has a kidney that was inside a little girl that used to dance with Molly. So that's just a piece of the journey. All of this was happening while we're just trying to make a baby, just trying to make a baby. But so after all of that was done, my head's better. Kenny is so much healthier now. I get the neurological approval to go ahead with the IVF. So this is now the summer of 2019. So we did a round and it didn't work. And so I thought, okay, my number's up. I'm 55 now. I think I had just turned 56. Yes. And so... I thought, I thought, okay, I'm too old. They won't do it now. So I went back to the doctor and we walk into his office with his sweet face. He's got this grin on his face and I'm looking at him like, have you been drinking wine? Like he just looked, he was just grinning at me like mischievously. Do you want to ask me out? Like he was just wonderful doctor. So sweet. And he, and I, and he said, sit down, we'll go over some things. And he points to Kenny and he goes, you're the problem, not her. <laughs> Cause he had been sick. So maybe an unhealthy sperm. I don't know, but so he said, it was not you. I could not believe you did not get pregnant. And I said, well, so we can try again. And he goes, only if you twist my arm. So I twisted his arm and he opens his drawer and pulls out a notebook with a big list on it. And he goes, I have some, I have plans. And so began the second round. So had COVID not hit, I would have gotten pregnant in like March of 2020. But COVID came right around then. So everything got put on hold, which was fine. So we had a few months in the spring of COVID. The moment things started to open up medically with safety procedures put in place, he called me up and he goes, all right, get back in here. He was retiring at the end of July. So he wanted to see it through. I was like his person. So it was only supposed to be people that were, I don't remember exactly how it was set, but he let me do it anyway. He like just snuck me in. So we had our transfer on July 26th. I turned 57 on July 29th and I had a confirmed pregnancy test on April 5th. So I know, I know. So then began the next phase of it, which was telling anybody. So in IVF, the first 12 weeks, you're still, you still have a patch in your tushy. You're still giving yourself shots, still taking all the hormones, all of it. So all of that goes along the first 12 weeks. I assumed it would be like a slow cutoff. No, at 12 weeks, you just simply stop and your body kicks in and takes over. So that was a very, the first 12 weeks were fine. I worked out. I didn't even, I love being pregnant. So I felt fine. And at 12 weeks, that's when I stopped being treated by the fertility clinic. And I now go to my local OBGYN, whose name is Ashish Shadri, nice Indian guy, everybody. So that's when I started with him. So I call him up at, um, at 13 weeks or so. And he said, and I said, all right, I'm coming in. And he goes, all right, your first order of business, keep your mouth shut for 10 more weeks. And I'm, I just, I'm holding the phone. I'm like, wait, what? 
Now, he, he was just looking out for me and knowing that it's a relatively small community. There's going to be a lot of judgment over somebody my age having a baby. I'm infamous in my town. I'm very outspoken. People love me or they hate me. Nobody's wishy-washy about Barb Higgins. And so he just knew that the right thing to do was just have every test that would be related to my age before I told people. So that if there was something wrong and I had to either end the pregnancy or I was going to have a lot of medical issues, I could do that privately and it wouldn't be public knowledge, which was wonderful advice on his part and actually allowed me another 10 weeks to really enjoy it before it became. But I work out at a CrossFit gym. So I go in and I'm in my belly. I'm not getting weight anywhere else, but I'm getting a pretty significant belly. So I had told the coaches. So I'm riding on the bike one day and my friend Pam looks over and she goes, oh, you're getting a belly too, just like me. And I said, yeah, but you have a menopause belly. I have a baby in mine. And she just looks at me like, what? No, you don't. I'm like, I do. So I had a little heartbeat on the phone. Like I recorded it on the phone. I'm like, here, listen to this. And she's like, what? So as I started to take, it was just a lot of fun. That was probably the most fun. I told my, I'm on the school board in town. So I told the superintendent and one school board member who I'm friendly with. It was just fun to pick and choose who to tell. And the, re the reactions were fantastic. So I went through every test in the book, ultrasounds and blood work and measuring Jack and really taking care to look at him. I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl at the time. And I, everything was fine. The final test I had was an echocardiogram, a fetal echocardiogram, so they can make sure his heart is okay. I lost a baby at 25 weeks in 1999 to a heart defect. So of course we go right back to the same place. So that was a very triggering I go in and they're doing everything and I talk to the tech and I tell her I'm Molly's mother and it's the same hospital affiliate that Molly was on life support, Dartmouth Hitchcock. And so she says, oh, we all know Molly. We, when, some, when we can't figure something out, we take a big breath and think about Molly and how can we look at this differently, which made me really happy because it makes her death a bit less in vain. And we had a wonderful conversation. I told her about the baby I'd lost and Dr. Rockenmacher, this, this Irish doctor with the thickest accent 20, 23 years ago now. And, and how kind he was to us. And, and she loved that he's retired now. We love him. And so the cardiologist comes in and she's this wonderful woman. She comes in, she's, everything is fine. She shows me everything. And she says, now tell me about this baby that you lost. And so I said, what was the the summer? No, I said, I lost him at 25 weeks. We actually chose to deliver him at 25 weeks and he didn't survive the delivery. To clarify, that's another whole issue. But and I said, we, we donated his body to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia because we knew that the heart defect was so unique and so rare that if the doctors could look at it, maybe they could fix it or figure out how to treat it. And again, a lot of people were very critical of me disposing of his body that way, but I felt like I was offering his body to research, to help to help other people. I kissed him and loved him and a little bit in my hand and sent him on his way. And so she says to me, was this 1999? And I said, yes says I performed the autopsy on that baby. Kenny and I couldn't speak for days. We just were, we drove home in silence. And she just said how helpful that being able to see a 3D, see it. And that they printed it, 3D printed it over the, and they've learned so much from it. And they've learned how to repair it so that babies can survive. Basically, there was so much wrong with it that that baby would have been born. We named him Gordy and he just would have drowned within minutes. Just the heart would have ceased to, it was backwards, upside down, only one ventricle, only one atrium transposition of the great arteries, like everything that could be wrong with the heart was wrong with the heart. So again, it made me feel good because that little, that his death saved, gave other moms a chance to not have to lose their babies. But that was, this whole process has been full of those kinds of experiences where 
things happen and we travel into the scenario and something amazing comes of it. So that now I can tell people it's just after Christmas into the new year. Jack was due April 13th and my pregnancy was fun. I worked out every day. I Nothing. I didn't feel any different other than a big belly and I pee when I sneeze, but at my age, you pee when you sneeze anyway. It wasn't that much difference. I think menopause and pregnancy are the same thing. The only difference is the baby. You pee when you sneeze, you cry all the time, you're sweaty or you're cold, you never sleep. All of those things happen in both scenarios, but with a baby, you have company. You have some of the ooh-ad and snuggle. So that's just my summation of the two. So about mid-March, I suddenly started to get real puffy. Um, and I had never been super puffy with any of my any of the other pregnancies. So I went to the I was working out and, and I, everything was fine, remained fine. And it was Wednesday the 17th of March. And I was, I went to the gym and I felt good and I did a big workout and all this. And I went to my doctor's appointment and I was okay. And then I went to my OBGYN appointment on Thursday and I had preeclampsia, like high, high blood pressure, all this. So I was at third, just completed 35 weeks or was in the middle of week 35, like right there. So not super early. And preeclampsia is not an age related condition at all. Women, all ages get it. So my doctor was going away on vacation and I had wanted him to deliver. And he goes, I made my vacation now. So I'd be back in April to deliver the baby. But so I went in, they let me go home. They gave me some, I was taking magnesium. Magnesium helps the blood pressure. And they gave me steroids for the Jack's lungs, which also helps your platelets. So they let me go home, stay home for a couple of days. But Friday I went in for an appointment and my blood pressure was like 195 over 105. So yeah, they wouldn't let me put me right in. I felt fine. Other than being puffy, like fat fingers, fat legs, I was like puffy in my neck. It didn't make me not breathe. Everything just was bizarre. So I went into the hospital on Friday night and there was still some COVID things in place with the number of visitors. Kenny was allowed to come and go, but only twice over the whole time I was there. And they had, he couldn't go to a store or something like that. He'd go home and come back. And we only live about a mile from the hospital. So that was fine. Gracie went and stayed at a friend's house. So Kenny stayed home with Gracie Friday night. She had a big dance competition the day that Jack ended up being born. I So I go into the hospital and I have this, it's, it's the merry band of women is what I called it. My bevy of beautiful maidens. I had young LNAs and nurses and both OBs on, on, on that night were women. And the one the next day was a woman. So it was just, the only guy in the room was Jack at that time. And then Kenny, they stripped my membranes. They gave me magnesium and they said, we'll give you Pitocin in the middle of the night and that will start your labor. So I fall asleep, assuming I'm going to be waking up a hundred times in the night and I wake up and it's morning and I'm looking around. I'm a bit puzzled. And so I order breakfast and I have order some coffee and it gets brought to me and I'm sitting and eating and drinking my coffee and watching the news. And the doctor comes in and she goes, well, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I'm fine. Are we not having a baby? And she said, yeah, she went into labor three o'clock this morning. I'm like, did you give me Pitocin? She goes, no, we didn't need to. You just, your body just did what it did. So I'm like, okay. So I call Kenny. It's maybe 10 o'clock now. And so they take a look and I'm pretty well dilated in the face. I'm really ready. My water hasn't broken. I'm having pretty good contractions, not super significant. So Kenny shows up at about 1130. They break my water. I have some significant contractions. And at 1230, they said, all right, why don't we try to push now? And so I laid down and pushed like a little bit, like a wishy-washy one. And then and the doctor said, come on, give me a good one. He'll come right out. So the next contraction, contraction, I did a CrossFit push and out he came. He's the one push wonder. So I had breakfast at 8.30, called Kenny at 10.30. He arrived at 11.30. Jack was born at 12.30. And at one o'clock, my lunch showed up. 
It's white lunch. <laughs> and so that was it. That's the, that's the whole miraculous story of Jack-Jack. I nurse him. He's still nursing. He's sick right now, so he's nursing all the time. So I was able to, at my age, produce milk and nurse a baby, which is awesome. That's something I never thought I would do again. So having a baby around at this age is actually less challenging than it was 20 years ago because I don't work full time. I, my, all, everything I do is I can do on my time and is not location necessary except the CrossFit coaching. If I can't coach, there's 50 other coaches that will come in and coach a class. It's not a difficult thing. So I love it. Candy's retired. He's home all the time. And so if we have a rough night, we sleep late and we just, I don't care if our house is messy and he doesn't want to finish his food. Okay. Something else. Like all the things you worry about when you're a young mother, am I doing it right? I'm like, you know what? If I do it wrong, it's not going to matter. He won't remember. It's just, I feel like a Grammy sometimes in the sense that my, my worry level now, having lost a child, I can worry pretty intensely around something bad happening to him and my mind can go to pretty dark places. But day to day, I just, is he talking yet? Yeah. Whenever he talks, he'll talk. He won't go to college, mute, in diapers, or only eating yellow food. All those things will resolve themselves by the time he goes to college. So <laughs> in the meantime, I'll just enjoy him. <laughs> so that's it. That's the last six and a half years of my life right there. It's, that is just an incredible story. And I'm going to go back to a few points, but yeah. that you're saying about you just chilled with the child. I feel like my fourth, I've got four kids. I feel like my yeah. fourth one just basically raised herself because yeah. the time I got it, I was just like, whatever. Yeah, you're yeah. Fine. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have a good friend and she slept with her first baby, second baby in a crib next to the bed third baby in a cradle at the bottom of the bed with a rope she could pull the rocket <laughs> <Same thing. laughs> yeah just she'll be fine yes exactly exactly so you've got you now got a website and a podcast as well to talk about all this what made yes. you start doing that a actually so quite obvious thing that it's just incredible right. <laughs> so the podcast actually came around because of uh so jack's birth was obviously joyful but it triggered in me and unleashed in me this giant level of anger, not anger at Jack or anger that I had a baby, but just angry that I have this beautiful, joyful thing, but I feel like I bought it at the cost of another child. Like it's child loss brain. We mothers who have lost children in traumatic ways or in any way, really children that you've given birth to and raised for a while and gotten to know and had a day-to-day -day life with everything is two things at once. You can't wait to die because you want to be with them, but you don't want to leave like Everything is double. I had a bit of postpartum anxiety and depression, maybe a couple of weeks. And I did with all my kids. The first couple of weeks were rough. And, but I just, as the summer went along after Jack was born, I just felt like I have to process this. I have to process this whole thing. I have to process Molly. I was very dark for a couple of years and I had good therapy, but I was very dependent on alcohol. All the prescription medicine I could take, I'll get into a little bit of drug use. And that will be a whole podcast season of its own eventually. I'm not quite ready to share all that, but it was horrifyingly bad. And so in trying to put my life back together and obey this dream that came, that kept coming to me, wonderful things happened. I've met amazing people and I've had these phenomenal experiences, everything that just tells me this was supposed to happen. So the podcast was really, I need to talk. I need to tell the story. I'm not disciplined enough to write a book, although I do have a book coming out. We'll get to that. And so I thought, you know what? I love to talk. I'm not afraid to talk. I'm articulate. I can put sentences together. I'm just going to start a podcast. About the time I started thinking that, a young man who had been good friends with my daughter, Gracie, when they were in preschool together, 
I see online, he's starting a podcast. He's a podcast editor. Ever thought about doing a podcast? I'm like, oh my gosh, someone I know. So I emailed him and said, would you consider being my podcast editor? And he has just walked me through it. Just, he's been phenomenal. He knew Molly. It took from May when I decided all the way until September for me to release my first episode because I was just all over the place. And I wasn't quite sure. And the name of it, A Thousand Tiny Steps, comes from a health class. I was a public school health educator for a while high school health. In the whole, in my junior health class, I talked a lot about decision-making and, you know, how you end up in good places and bad. And people don't just wake up and say, gee, I think I'll get drunk, drive my car and kill somebody. But people get drunk and drive their cars and kill people all the time. That decision wasn't made by one move. That was a million decisions or a thousand of them over a long period of time. Something happened that caused the next thing to happen, that caused the next thing, that put you in that car on that day, in that level of intoxication. To make that decision. I had somebody in the hospital when Molly was on life support tell me not to blame myself, that this was a lot of decisions, a lot of left turns and right turns that I didn't make. And so it, while it comforted me to some level, the way my brain is, I immediately thought, okay, what's the first step I took that caused Molly's death? Like, where was it me? And it, become, it became very, I'm a very, I think all the time, like my brain goes a mile a minute. So it's not something I could really put down. So the podcast and the title of the podcast came together that way. I'd had a very inactive blog site for years that I called A Thousand Times Steps. And it all came from that from that health lesson. I would talk to them, you find yourself pregnant. You didn't wake up and decide to get pregnant. Lots of things went into either lack of birth control or birth control failure or deciding, making the decision to do this with your boyfriend. Like these decisions aren't one decision events. Everything in our life starts with that first little step. People don't run and jump into the middle of a frozen pond. They inch their way out to see if the ice is safe. And they either make it or they fall through. But it's all these little steps until whatever is going to happen does or doesn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, I actually thought it was referring to your journey through grief, but it's not. It's just a general life thing, isn't it? Yes, but it's a philosophy I've held forever. And so when I was trying to make myself okay, and okay, Barbara, let's relive it. Let's go back. I thought, oh, I think I'm just going to call the podcast A Thousand Tiny Steps. It makes perfect sense. And so that's really where it came from. And so in organizing the podcast, I've just, I chuck it together in seasons by topic. So I have a Jack season and a Molly season and a parent, a trauma season, changes in parenting season, my crazy college years season. Like I, I go through all of my life and this season seven, which I just recorded the first episode for today is the years leading up to Molly's death. And my life was pretty traumatic at that time. My marriage was failing. I was, we were in and out of living together. I started another relationship, which ended up being a disastrous choice to make. And so my life was just in upheaval. And all those years leading up to her death, I worked very hard for Gracie and Molly to only see a happy family home. And Kenny and I did that well together. We could put hit the pause button and have a family dinner that no one knew anyone was mad at each other, which is a nice skill to have, but not necessarily a good way to deal with things. We didn't fight in front of the girls, but we didn't fix things either. And so this season seven will be, it'll be hard for me to rec record because I'm, I'll bring up a lot of things that I regret or were uncomfortable, that sort of thing. But in the process of talking about my life, I have, I just feel so much better about everything. I feel like I've grown and the response has been wonderful. I know a lot of people, so I have pretty good listenership, not great, but, and I, Always, every episode, I have never released an episode not have had at least one or two people say, oh my gosh, thank you for this one. That's good. If one person can feel better or can relate or connect. But I talk about everything. I, I was a victim of childhood sexual abuse. And of course, that's a taboo subject. No one wants to hear it, except 
It's not my job to carry it around. It's my job to share it and help other others. And so I've had great response to those episodes just because I think we as women are taught to smile and <laughs> just be okay, cry all night and then get up and be happy. So it's been wonderful and I feel pretty good about it. I've enjoyed it a lot. Isn't it interesting because the first reaction that a lot of people have to even writing a blog, never mind talking about yourself on a podcast is I can't do that. People want to hide and they want to, some people do want to put on a good face to the world. That's what it's about. But for most people, it's about hiding the stuff that isn't very. Yes, exactly. And I think different cultures, in so many cultures, women are just hidden. So you don't know anything about that woman behind all those clothes in certain cultures. Or like in America, Southern women are meant to be very proper and very polite and all of this. And I, it's just, I just think sometimes we raise our baby boys to be little men and our baby girls to be little princesses and they grow up and assume those roles. And then when it comes to sharing, now I'm just an open book. Oh, I always have been. If this is my mouth and it's gotten me in more trouble than I can... Oh, but it's also my greatest asset because I'm not afraid to use it. And so for anyone that's suffering in silence, if listening to a podcast can acknowledge, give them acknowledgement um, and make them feel better, even if they never have the chance or the ability or the desire to share their own stories. I know when I read something about another mother that's lost a child and it resonates with me, I just feel so much better. Okay, I'm not the only one. And I have a connection there. And so whatever I'm talking about, I think when other people can connect, it's a helpful thing. Yeah, I agree. I think because we're taught to, as women in particular, guys do the same thing. As human beings, we're taught to keep certain things to ourselves, don't share, yes. but it ends up with us. And particularly as we get older, we feel isolated. We feel like that we're the only ones that have got this problem who have ever experienced this, whereas right. in actual fact, people have experienced something similar. Yes, absolutely. And they're now doing a lot of neurological research. Mental illness takes such a hit because we think of it as a behavioral problem. But every single mental illness originates in the brain. And the brain is an organ, just like kidney is an organ. We don't criticize people for kidney disease. But somebody is acting a certain way and they're diagnosed with a brain-related mental illness and they're still, if you just smiled more, can't you just be happy? Did you take your medication? There's all this judgment around it. But grief and trauma especially unresolved grief and trauma wreaks havoc on the body physically. It causes issues in the brain. It can, it's related to so many diseases. For women, the release of cortisol is exponential in traumatized women. And cortisol gives you a fat belly as you get older. It's this hormone that really causes a lot of damage to the body. So talking about it, it releases a lot of negative physical symptoms that come from grief and trauma. I became old. Molly died. And within two or three weeks, I looked in the mirror, I looked in the reflection in a window, I was walking downtown and I went, oh my God, I look like my mom. Now I don't mind looking like my mother, but she's 21 years older than me. I looked like her. Like I suddenly didn't look like this young, fit, athletic 53 year old. I suddenly was old. And that's a very common byproduct of traumatic grief is aging. And I did, I feel better now, but it changed me, really, truly changed me physically. So I think to myself, okay, an event that didn't, that had nothing to do with my physical body affected my physical body. So I've learned a lot. I have read and read about trauma and in the years since Molly's died, I've learned so much, which is another wonderful thing that sometimes makes me angry because why do I have to lose a child to better myself? That's the sort of the black and white grief mother idea. When I step back and take a breath, that isn't how it is at all, but it's how it feels sometimes. 
I was going to say pull yourself out of that, but that's not what I want to say. How do you acknowledge that and let it go? How do you move? I call it moving along. And for me, it was impossible for about two years. I didn't move move on or along at all. I just had to sit in it. We were also involved in a lawsuit. So all we talked about was when Molly was alive. So it was this piece of my head that believed she must still be alive because we're talking about her when she was alive. And so once the lawsuit was done, it was really that was my reckoning or I turned the corner. Okay, she's never coming back. I can spend the rest of my life a drug addled alcoholic or I can pick myself up and do her proud. It's like that. That's how it was for me. Doesn't mean I haven't had my relapses and my bad days. I had a horrible month of December, which was just four days ago. But I, I think sometimes it's time for grief, for child loss, time doesn't heal anything. I don't feel healed at all, but I do feel better able to carry it. And so where Molly's death was like a big, giant, wet, smelly blanket in the beginning, now it's a well-folded suitcase, sleeping bag with a little handle. So I carry it everywhere I go. I'm never without it because Molly's not here but I can put it on my arm and carry other things now as opposed to this big, wet, smelly blanket. Does that make sense? So it's just, I can step back and look at it now because I can put the grief over here for a moment. Sometimes I can even set it down, but when I walk away, it's right in front of my feet immediately. Do you, What is the message you want to get across to women? Not just women who maybe lost a child or who've had a baby late in life, but you've got some life lessons that are really important there that are applicable to everybody. What is yes. it you want to say? For the biggest life lesson I feel in everything I have gone through is not being willing to put up with somebody treating you in a way that makes you feel bad. So doctors, like make sure if you go to a doctor and you hear something that's hurtful or you don't agree with or wrong, find a doctor that respects you and that you can communicate well with. When you're dating and you go on a date, and even though this person's handsome, but if they treat you poorly, then put that person aside and find. The biggest thing for me was in my journey, making sure that the people that are part of my journey love me or respect me and treat me well. That would be the first thing, especially in medical things and especially with women, because we are so often brushed aside as being stressed or whatever. So in the IVF process, in the child loss process, in the brain tumor process, make sure that the people involved in your care are listening to you and love you or respect you. I say love because I kind of love everybody. The other thing, the other big thing for me is regardless of what's happened to you, maybe you've never lost a child. Maybe you get pregnant easily. Maybe you've never been sick, but all of us have bad things that happen. And if it's the worst thing that's ever happened to you, then it's your traumatic event. Give yourself permission to sit with it and treat yourself well first. Don't be afraid to allow yourself to really feel hopeless and sad. We try to push those things aside. Come on, cheer up. Don't cheer up. If you're in a bad mood, be in a bad mood. If you need to stay in bed for a day, stay in bed. If your tears are coming out, let them flow because it will pass and you'll have those moments where you feel better again. And those two things, and I guess that second one would lead into even when you're sad, The day after Molly died was Mother's Day and the sun came up and it was a beautiful day. And that year it pissed me off, I have to be honest. But the sun will always come up, it will. There will be another day. There will be another day for it to be better. Maybe it will be worse, but there will always be another day. And in that day, things can be different. So we have a lot of pressure put on us to fix ourselves and be happy and make it all right. Go ahead and sit in it and think about what you need to think about and be okay with who you are. Matters not what anyone else thinks. It's about you. Does that... I guess that's what I want to say. And that relates to any experience. It does. I think one of the things that I've noticed is that we don't give ourselves permission to have the bad feelings, particularly Correct. not to 
sad feelings, the grieving kind of things. Anger, a little bit for a little bit, but grief, no. We're not allowed to do that. We put on the face and we get over ourselves and we're supposed to be okay with everything. And it's not, that isn't how it works at all. And even anger has an important message. I'm taking a a grief coaching certification class and the professor, the teacher, David Kessler, he's an author and a grief coach, talked about looking at a medical record that said inappropriate anger by father. And they had just been given news that their child died. There's no inappropriateness about anger. Think of a dead child. Oh my gosh, it was, but the medical thing in that medical record was inappropriate anger by father, mother sobbing and wailing or something like this. And as long as you're not hurting people in your anger or making decisions out of it. But when I'm angry, I need to be angry. I typically go outside and throw things, rocks at trees, <laughs> snowballs or whatever. I just, I let it, or I go scream. I would drive in the car and scream. I, I'm angry. I need to express my anger right now. I need to swear the alphabet or whatever it is that will make me feel, process my anger. But yeah. Overall, permission to just feel what you're feeling and sit with it and let it do what it needs to do has been hugely helpful for me. Thank you so much. It's been really fabulous listening to you, heartbreaking and inspiring at the same time, listening to your story. Just tell people how they can get in touch with you. I'll put it up on the website and it'll yeah, be on yeah. the bottom of the YouTube video yeah. as well. But so if I- you can remember a thousand tiny steps, I have a my website is a thousand tiny and my email is a thousand tiny steps at gmail.com. <laughs> and then I have a Facebook page. I'm just Barb Higgins and I live in New Hampshire. And my Instagram is Barb underscore 444. And I'm also on LinkedIn as Barb Higgins. I don't have a Twitter. I have a TikTok, which I never use, but my daughter Gracie is all ready to help me. And that's Barb124. So that's me. Or just Google me because <laughs> the website. I'm a good, I'm a good read if you can't sleep at night. You are a good read. I've been reading some of your blogs. They are good. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you responding. It's an honor for me. I have to be honest. When someone is willing to listen, I feel very humbled by that. So thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted and rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends, please. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you're leaving with some great ideas that can make a difference in your everyday life. Until next time.